0: Hey everybody! This is Volks for January twenty fifth, two thousand twenty three. Fine, we're doing gas stoves. I'm your host, David Roberts. Earlier this month, gas stoves exploded into the news overnight. Everyone had an opinion, and Republican Congress people were threatening violence if jackbooted government thugs arrived to confiscate their stoves. A great deal of this gas stove discourse has been lamentably stupid, and some of it has been educational, but on all sides, there's just been a lot of it, so I thought it was worth doing a podcast trying to tease out the facts. To help with that, I contacted Sage Welch of Sunstone Strategies, a climate communications firm that's been supporting electrification policies since 2018. Welch has spent years tracking the science, which has been accumulating for decades, public opinion and regulatory action on gas stoves. Together, we dig into how this controversy arose, the science informing it, how the politics are shaping up, and what it pretends for the future of decarbonization. All right, here we go then. Without any further ado, Sage Welch, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we're going to do this. We're going to get into stoves. (laughs) Those of us, you know, who have been following decarbonization and electrification have known about this for a while and probably have been cooking with induction for a while. But Lordy, did it bust into the popular consciousness uh, in the past week or two and just cause a frenzy of nonsense. Uh, So we're going to try to walk through the whole thing here, the background, the science, uh, what's ahead. We're going to try to get it all. God help us. All right. So, Sage, first of all, why... Now. <laughs> what, what 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 happened? Why is everybody talking about gas stoves now?
1: Yeah. So the roots of the past couple weeks debate is the result of three different things that happened in December. Mm-hmm. So in December, the public interest research group held a webinar. Uh, the webinar was to launch a report that they had done with the Sierra Club based on a 10-state survey of what information, if any, gas stove shoppers were receiving at point of sale from the nation's three largest retailers of stoves about like, the health risks and how folks can protect themselves, etc., And the answer to that was like, not very much information at
0: all. (laughs) Yeah, I'm guessing none is is approximately none.
1: None and a lot of disinformation of like, Uh, don't worry about ventilation. And and many folks just hadn't heard of it. And to be fair, the retailers haven't been able to train their sales associates and staff. This just hasn't been on the radar. But it was, you know, they thought it was important to take a look and um, just see like, does anyone even get any inkling of this information when they're they're shopping? And so Richard Trumka, Jr., who is a Consumer Product Safety Commissioner, joined that webinar. And he used that time to announce that the CPSC would be opening an RFI, a Request for Information on Gas Stove Pollution, in 2023. And he used, you know, pretty strong language. He said, we need to be talking about regulating gas stoves, whether that's drastically improving emissions or banning gas stoves entirely. And this was pretty surprising, even to health and consumer advocates who've been urging CPSC to investigate this in recent years, but also going back 40 years.
0: Sounds like it was pretty surprising to uh, his own agency and to his bosses. (laughs) Sounds like it was pretty surprising to everyone.
1: The world was not ready for (laughs) Trump Jr. to make this statement.
0: Do you know why, I mean, is he just the kind of guy who like gets excited and gets out over his skis or, or do you think that, I mean, do you hear any hint of like deliberate, like 12 dimensional chess here, or is this just Trump getting too excited?
1: I mean, A, it was a perg webinar. So I'm not (laughs) sure that like there was a lot of chess playing going on. That's a
0: lot of dimensions of chess if you're starting there.
1: The sense I get about his position on this, and again, like at the CPSC level, and we'll get to this, this issue is like not new, Um, but the sense I get is that he's just takes his role and the role of the commission quite seriously as far as like duty to protect consumers. And this question about whether gas stoves are safe or can be made safe has been hanging around for a while. But when he says banning gas stoves, I think maybe what he is getting at is like, you know, he made these follow up remarks to Bloomberg a month later on products that can't be made safe can be banned. And I think, again, what he's getting at is just like, there is a duty at the commission to ensure safety of products. Mm -hmm. And as we'll jump into, you know, there's is what EPA and many others deem a safe level of NO2 pollution and jury's still out on whether gas stoves um, are safe in that regard.
0: Or can be made safe in that regard.
1: And can be made safe, exactly.
0: Okay, so Trump just says this on the webinar, and then. It didn't blow up immediately, right?
1: It didn't. Some folks actually did cover this. So the Hill Chicago Tribune actually kind of technically broke this story, but mm-hmm. it doesn't It doesn't blow up immediately. And then the following week, I think just somewhat coincidentally, Senator Cory Booker's office released a letter from 18 members of Congress calling on the CPSC to investigate gas stoves, calling out the health harms. And again, not the first time that a congressional body or a subcommittee has has made this recommendation and actually the Senate committee escapes me, but um, the head of a Senate committee also made this recommendation last August as well. So um, this is something that's been brewing in Congress um, in recent months and years. And then, you know, that happens and there's a a little bit of coverage. But then in late December, a new study was published in a, a prominent medical journal from researchers at RMI, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and the University of Sydney. And this study found that 12.7% of childhood asthma cases in the U.S. are attributable to gas stove use. And that in some states like Illinois, New York, California, where there's really high rates of gas cooking, that number is actually much higher. Um, Mm -hmm. In Illinois and California, it's over 20%. So that study was, you know, fairly shocking. Although it's based on statistics that have been around for quite a while, that find that um, kids living in homes with gas stoves have a pretty substantial increased risk of developing asthma symptoms.
0: Right. Just to, and, and maybe we can touch on this again later. But just to be clear, this new asthma study was not a direct. It's not new data. It's just sort of a regression run on existing data from this 2014 study.
1: Yeah, this 2013 meta-analysis, and actually they only focused in this study on risk factors that had been established through North American peer-reviewed published data. But it is basically like a math problem there. We know that uh, this percentage that living with a gas stove can increase risk of developing asthma symptoms. And therefore, when we look at the number of kids with asthma living in homes with gas stoves, um, it's like a, called like a population attributable factor.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. The point being, it's not, it's not new. It's just that that information was sitting there in that meta-analysis basically has... I exactly. Mean, we,
1: it just helped them put a fine point on exactly. the, the number of cases that that could be linked.
0: And so those three happened. And then the Bloomberg story followed up on that.
1: Yeah. So Bloomberg um, reporter Ari Natter was covering that report and then also thought to go ahead and do an interview with Trumpka, just based on those statements made in the webinar earlier. And so Trumpka, in that interview now utters what I feel like is just kind of this infamous statement that gas stoves are a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table and products that can't be made safe can be banned, which is true and so the bloomberg beast publishes on on monday morning and it just goes viral like huh. within 12 hours everyone starts covering this potential ban i think the language of the headline made it feel like this was far more imminent
0: <laughs> than yes ari kind of uh i think he knew what he was doing here and it's uh yeah so just to be clear about what Trump is talking about not that not that it, not that the truth of what Trump goes talking about matters at all in this hysteria, but at best he's talking about launching a process that will investigate things that will go through rounds of whatever that may someday result in gastos being banned from new new, <laughs> new construction that is yes. the worst possible i mean if you're scared of this. <laughs> That's the worst possible outcome here. No one at any point was talking about going into existing homes and ripping out people's stoves. Let's just get that out there.
1: No, but the imagery is compelling.
0: <laughs> the jackboots. Yeah. Uh, the jackboots.
1: Yeah, so for whatever reason, and obviously, I mean, they'll, they'll find anything they can, I think, but the right-wing echo chamber just goes like totally ballistic trying to paint this picture of a full-blown, you know, midnight raids of like dark Brandon invading with a crowbar and like <laughs> just like pipes and all that's coming well, with it's us. no
0: mystery why they do that they did the same thing with beef around totally Green-A-Deal or whatever they know that this triggers all the right kind of resentment yes okay so these three things happen and then Trumka follows up these three things with the, the big old band word and the and then this all explodes suddenly everyone's talking about it and my you know this is one of these funny experiences that people have in our world where you know like we've been talking about this forever it's just fascinating sociologically fascinating to watch the vast bulk of people who just have never thought about this at all right just like this is the first they're hearing of anything about it at all so it's interesting to watch people sort of like untutored spontaneous reactions to this.
1: Totally. I mean, I this is, I just think, the best thing ever. I, <laughs> I, I'm loving every second of it, A, because, you know, we've been working to create awareness about the health harms of gas stoves for a long time. But also, and we can get into this, I think, you know, Republicans think they've touched on this major like kitchen table issue. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a really shining and striking moment for the climate movement. And yes, becoming relevant is not a bad thing.
0: Yes, yes. We'll discuss the politics later. I think they're less straightforward than people think. And I think you're you're right. But first, so this is why it's on everybody's mind. Now let's insofar as we can do so in a reasonable amount of time, (laughs) let's talk about the science. Everybody's arguing about the science now. What do we know and how long have we known it? Give us sort of like a capsule history of the science.
1: So when you cook with methane gas, you're combusting a fossil fuel, much like you do in your car, but you're doing it in your home and the pollution that's created goes directly into your kitchen and like kind of just like straight into your face. And ventilation can help disperse some of those pollutants. Ventilation is super important, especially if that ventilation is going outside. Unfortunately, a lot of ventilation circulates straight back to you and or no one uses it and or you may not have a range hood. But we've actually seen ventilation not be super effective at dispersing nitrogen dioxide pollution. And that's the pollutant that we're really concerned about when it comes to the health impacts of cooking and of combusting the gas.
0: Well, what about let me let me I'm going to jump in with naive questions here. Sure. One, one thing I hear a lot is that one class of pollutants produced by cooking is just from cooking the food, charring the food itself, which is going to be produced by. Any cooking. Totally. (laughs) Any type of cooking. So what is like what are the percentages here? Like if I'm worried about those pollutants, are those the main ones or is NO two the main one? Where do they all kind of fall out?
1: Okay, so when you cook, uh, yeah, that process itself does produce particulate matter, like PM two point five. Right. There is research that shows that gas cooking produces like fifty percent more PM two point five. Or homes mm. that are cooking with gas does produce a bit more of that particulate matter. And again, we'll talk more about this, but the gas industry is really seized on this idea that all cooking creates pollution, and it's absolutely true. Even you know electric stoves, it's a good idea to try and fan some of this particulate matter like away from you and out the window.
0: Yes, ventilation is important in all cooking. Let's just yes. put a stake in that.
1: But then the conversation that we're having in regards to asthma and lung irritants, um, specifically, we really do need to zero in on nitrogen dioxide and NO2. Because mm-hmm. NO2 exposure is just really bad. This uh, leads to aggravated respiratory symptoms, higher susceptibility to lung infections like COVID, COVID, (laughs) um, (laughs) increased risk of asthma, as well as like IQ and learning deficits, increased risk of cardiovascular effects. I don't think there's anyone that's going to argue that NO2 pollution is not bad. Mm -hmm. We've regulated NO2 levels outdoors for a very long time. And I actually think that there's steady new research coming out that NO2 is even worse outdoors than we ever thought. But there's this funky little thing where no one actually gets to regulate indoor air concentrations. But what we know about cooking with gas is that in the time it takes to like bake a pie, about an hour, 90% of all homes, specifically when you're cooking with gas, will have an unhealthy level of NO2 pollution, a level that EPA says is not acceptable in outdoor air. And EPA research shows that homes with gas stoves can have up to 400% higher NO2 concentrations than homes with electric stoves. Because with an electric stove, you're not combusting a fossil fuel. This pollution is very specific to that fossil fuel combustion. And that when it comes to NO2, like kids are just really at risk. And so are seniors. And so are pregnant people. There's, there's a lot of populations who for whom NO2 is, produces very bad outcomes. So there's about 57, just by like my team's count, uh, peer-reviewed studies that have come out since 1976 that find links between gas cookings and various health harms. Um, and these are all, again, peer-reviewed journal published studies. And as we mentioned, that latest asthma study is based on some really important work that came out in 2013, which is a meta-analysis. It's like a literature review of more than 40 different research papers looking at the effects of NO2 from gas cooking, and it's linked to asthma.
0: A lot of what I'm seeing about the science goes back to this 2013-2014 meta-analysis, and some back even to like a study in 1991, I think. I guess my naive question is, why isn't there more recent Especially given the rising sort of profile of this whole issue, why is there not more recent empirical, direct empirical research about this?
1: I don't know exactly, but I'm not sure that I my answer is I think it's just firmly established. I mean, I think the purpose of that meta-analysis was to say the science on this is relatively well established as far as the, you know, gas cooking creates NO2. NO2 creates health hazards. And we'll talk about this, but there was a flurry of research on this in the 70s and 80s by the gas industry, but also by like the National Academy of Sciences. Um, There was a 1981 symposium on indoor air pollution in Massachusetts, and there was no less than 15 papers introduced at that symposium on pollution from fuel-fired appliances. Mm. Um, We actually had this very robust conversation about this in the 70s and 80s, and it just kind of died down.
0: A couple other naive questions. One is, like my gas furnace also has a pilot light, right? Is also combusting a fossil fuel, you know, in some cases, people's water heater or whatever. Are all indoor gas appliances producing NO2, or, is, or do other appliances sort of handle it better in some way?
1: So those other appliances are also producing NO2 and a wide range of pollutants, but the difference is they're vented outdoors naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, The stove is the only one that's not directly vented outdoors. And I think it's important to bring this up, though, because we I don't think it's been underappreciated, the role that gas appliances play in smog formation. Mm -hmm. In California, where I'm based, there's air quality management districts and also the California Air Resources Board. These folks are um, required to meet federal air quality standards. Mm-hmm. And what I see them focusing on right now, because actually there's some, some movement on this, we can't actually meet these standards unless we do something at the moment about these vented appliances.
0: So gas appliances in homes and buildings are a notable contributor to outdoor Pollution?
1: The gas appliances in the Bay Area contribute more, like more NOx, which is a creates smog, than all of the passenger vehicles in the Bay Area.
0: No shit.
1: In California, in total... These appliances are responsible for more than four times the NOx pollution than our power plants.
0: That is wild.
1: It's striking, which, you know, also helps put the stove in perspective because you're just like, yeah, you're burning a fuel that produces (laughs) pollutants. It's like there's not really any way around it. Um, And that's one of the reasons why the California Air Resources Board, as a part of the state implementation plan, which is their plan for how they're going to continuously meet these federally mandated air quality standards, committed to basically a zero greenhouse gas emission standard for heaters and hot water heaters by 2030, which effectively is going to end the sale of those products Mm -hmm. here in California simply because they are key contributors. And and the the Bay Area is also working on a rule on this, um, you know, a NOx rule, essentially. Um, But fortunately, we have technologies like heat pumps and others that don't produce any pollution. But yes, really underappreciated contributors to smog.
0: Interesting. And second naive question. You know, a lot of people, a lot of the criticisms of the science you're seeing online are saying things like, you know, these studies sort of like seal a room in plastic and then run the stove. And then, of course, you find nitrous oxides. But if you ventilate properly, you're fine. Can you get to a safe indoor air level if you are using proper ventilation? What's the story there?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's the question that CPSC is setting out exactly to determine Hmm. what is a safe level of NO2 and how can we ensure that um, cooking products are meeting it or fossil fuel appliances are meeting it. I think ventilation can help, and it is again, it's super important, especially as we're having this conversation. Like, let's talk about mitigating risk factors while also talking about long-term policy solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll probably speak like rather imprecisely, and we can let mm-hmm. um, you know people attack us on Twitter for that. But my understanding <laughs> is that ventilation is—it's not entirely or. I would guess I would use the word like adequately effective against specifically that NO2. My, you know, kind of silly understanding of it is that NO2 is like a heavier pollutant. And it's mm. harder to disperse. You know, there was a study about whole home ventilation, um, which is kind of different than super high-powered range hoods, but it's, it's actually kind of considered the gold standard in ventilation as we're learning more about how to produce the healthiest indoor air possible. Right. And that found that that specific method is not effective against NO2. Ah. Uh-huh and you know to be clear as well you're going to have levels of no2 in your home because that is the key pollutant that comes from fossil fuel combustion so if you're living by a road which we probably are, all are right. you know you're going to have some trace and ambient amounts of no2 but you're not going to have i mean the gas stove is a little mini fossil fuel power plant it is burning <laughs> it right in your face so it just changes that concentration dramatically
0: and also i mean it's worth pointing out here that you know, what studies we have show that something, it's like 20% of people, 30% of people report actually using their hoods, using their ventilation at all, much less on, and, and one of the reasons they cite they don't want to do it is it's too loud. And of course, it only works the way it's supposed to work if you crank it up to the right level right based on totally. based on your cooking so you need it to be kind of loud and kind of running all the time if you want to even approach these sort of top levels of safety so
1: yeah if we ended this conversation with just ventilation we'd be doing ourselves like a pretty wild disservice um and yeah not only do folks not really use it and there's questions about how effective it really is it's also i um my last apartment we had a gas stove with no range hood whatsoever (laughs) i I can't even actually remember living (laughs) in a place which maybe speaks to bay area housing but that has had ventilation paired with a gas stove and as a tenant, you know, you're very stuck there.
0: We discovered when we uh, uh, remodeled our kitchen that our vent, which we never used because it was loud and rattly, just vented up into the attic. Like it didn't go (laughs) outside, outside at all. So it was just recirculating. And I forget the exact figures on that too, but something like half of ventilation fans do that. They just recirculate air in the home, which of course is doing next to nothing for you. So this is sort of my signpost around ventilation. Like if you approach it scientifically and set it all up exactly right, you might be approaching safe levels of indoor air, but that is just the wild exception. And as you say, I want to return to this later, but we'll just sort of put a pin in it here. Renters and low income people are the ones most likely to live in shitty setups with bad, (laughs) with bad stoves and bad ventilation.
1: And smaller. And, you know, and this is the other thing that really matters here is like the room size matters, the airflow matters, you know, and yes, it's the smaller households where this is just really highly concerning. And it's also, you know, if you're, I don't know, these could well be folks who are living in areas that are already really overburdened with pollution Mm -hmm. at the outdoor level. So the fact that you can't find access to clean air that, I mean, I'm a parent, it just breaks my heart. It's not. uh,
0: Yeah, it's terrible. Okay so this is this is the science is there more to say about I me mean, there's a lots of studies about NOx virtually impossible to get a safe level of NOx in your house if you're running a, a gas stove
1: That's well established and then there's this other honestly, really creepy body of evidence that is coming out about what is in the gas that's in our home and when and how we're being exposed to that uh, through leakage. So Mm. uh, there's been a series of three studies in the past year. The first one came from Stanford. It came out in January of 2022. And that found that gas stoves are leaking methane. I mean, unsurprisingly, because gas is almost entirely methane around the clock while they are Mm.
0: off. This is the pilot light or just is something else?
1: No, this is like leakage from the fittings from the stove mm. itself. There's like, I think there's just like this is a gas that wants to leak and it's gonna find a way. This
0: is an echo of all the recent research about methane pipelines, too, right? The whole exactly. methane infrastructure yeah. is leaking all over the place.
1: And for this reason, you know, and you folks have been making this point, like gas stoves are a relatively small emissions impact, but they're actually a much more potent climate hazard than we thought. And that's what that research shows us. So that body of research shows that not only are gas stoves leaking a bunch of stuff well off, the methane side of that leakage is contributing to the, um, it's like the emissions equivalent of 500,000 cars being driven each year Totally separate from the combusting of the fuel, but just that sheer methane Mm. leakage is a pretty big climate issue. And so that kind of established this, this point that these are leaking. And then s- researchers from Harvard and PSC Healthy Energy started a project measuring and looking at what was in the unburnt gas that was leaking from gas stoves. And they've done this in two places so far. The first study was in Boston, and it they found nearly 300 chemical compounds, including 21 pollutants that are known to be toxic to humans including benzene, which is a known carcinogen uh, linked to blood disorders and leukemia. And the Boston study didn't measure concentrations, but just the presence. So Mm. we're like, okay, stoves are leaking and they're leaking some really harmful stuff. And I just think at the core of this, it's just deeply fascinating that we don't know and kind of have never really known all the different components (laughs) that are in gas. It's a little wild, right? It's totally crazy. It's coming into our homes. And uh, this PSE study that I'm about to mention, the title of the study is Home is Where the Pipeline Ends because it literally is. Mm -hmm. From sourcing to transportation to distribution lines to your house, gas is picking up all kinds of stuff. And we don't ever really determine what is in that and how it could affect you. So This PSE study did the same thing as the Boston study. They measured what was in the gas that was leaking from kitchens in California, but this time they measured the concentrations. And they found that in California, the benzene levels that were leaking were just off the charts, up to seven times California's recommended exposure limit. But those exposure limits are saying, like, those exist because the state kind of has to say Something. Um, <laughs> but the World Health Organization, you know, any health authority is going to tell you there is no safe level of benzene exposure. It's right. a toxin that accumulates in your body over time. And I mean, it gives you cancer uh, in the long term. So, so they compared this at the concentration level. Um, the leakage in homes in California was about the same level of the benzene concentration that you'd see if you lived with an indoor smoker. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of interesting because the most recent RMI asthma study also found that that 12% childhood asthma link level is about the same as secondhand smoke.
0: Interesting. So
1: we have two different places where we're learning that the health impacts are, are just quite strikingly similar to what it would be if you were living with a smoker
0: indoors. Although I am extremely old, I did not actually live through the arguments, or at least was not paying attention to the arguments about indoor smoking. But uh, from what I've read about them, they took a, an oddly similar shape to <laughs> to all these arguments we're having. We're having now. Yeah. This is, you know, this is something I say about air pollution all the time. My folks, listeners, are probably sick of hearing it, but just it's been decades now that more or less every time scientists return to the subject of air pollution, they discover the same thing: it's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. That's consistent across decades now. Across pollutants, you know, uh, particulates are this way, NOx, etc. So. You don't want to sort of say, here's what we know today, and this is probably final. It's just like, intuitively, things are probably going to keep going in the direction they've been going. We're probably going to keep finding out they're worse than we thought and worse than we thought. Totally. Okay. So, NOx is super bad. The chemicals in gas are super bad. Both are being leaked into the home. We've known about that for... uh, We've known about NOx for a long time. We're learning about benzene and these new chemicals more recently. So... Let's pivot from the science then to the politics of this. So you say we've known these issues about indoor air quality related to stoves have been around for a while. Give us just a little bit of the history. Like when did this first start coming into the sort of uh, consciousness of regulators and how has the gas industry (laughs) responded over the years?
1: Yeah, so this is super fascinating and I think um, has kind of been missing from the discourse this week, so I'm really excited that we get to talk about it. But um, the best snapshot I've seen of this historical debate comes from a paper we found The paper's called The Impact of Indoor Air Quality on the Gas Industry. Uh, It was published in 1984. And let's just take a moment. Not the impact of the gas industry or gas on indoor air quality. Right. Yeah, this paper uh, was commissioned by the gas industry. Um, (laughs) The purpose was to provide an overview of the indoor air quality issue to gas utility legal representatives. And they say over and over, the reason that they are commissioning this report and looking at this is due in large part to the fact that the Consumer Product Safety Commission was at that time um, undertaking a rather robust investigation into fuel-fired appliances. Mm. Um, And so scientists, federal authorities, and the gas industry were all engaged in a very robust conversation about this. The American Gas Association actually set up something called the Gas Research Institute in 1976. Fun fact, costs that were eventually passed on to ratepayers to establish that institute. (laughs) Um, (laughs) through some fees that they were paying uh, for like pipeline transportation. And in 2000, that that merged with the Institute of Gas Tech or uh, GTI, and they're still producing research for AGA. But so AGA and the gas industry kind of set up their own research. But what this paper shows us that in 1974, the science of the health harms was not only well-established, but there was like a lot of discussion about this in media. The gas industry and the paper says you know, the gas industry has been researching this since the 70s due to Congress and public concerns. And as I mentioned, there was that like 1981 symposium, they mentioned this in the paper where there's just like, An explosion of papers and scientists really interested. Um, And this is also around the time where we were really focused on energy conservation. So we were tightening up building envelopes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason why there was also an expressed interest in what might be floating around inside. Because we were steadily locking people into those pollutants.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yes, the building ceiling, I think, is probably you could probably view as like the tail end of the kind of oil crisis, Jimmy Carter... Mm-hmm. let's preserve oil let's do energy efficiency tail into the 70s that movement which then ran into the 80s in Reagan which i think our story does as well
1: yes and so yeah in this paper they give you this really fascinating snapshot particularly of the media interest so they're they're noting that like there's a lot of articles running in the wall street journal and reader's digest and consumer reports um, they have some quotes from consumer reports i'll read this one from 1982 Children from gas stove homes have a greater incidence of respiratory illness and impaired lung function than those from homes with electric stoves. And then in 1984, there's this excerpt from a Consumer Reports article that says, the evidence so far suggests that emissions from a gas range do pose a risk and if you're buying a new range and you can choose between electric and gas, you might want to choose an electric one. Mm. And that is just like verbatim <laughs> what everything has said this week and you know some new <laughs> reporting that we're seeing from consumer reports. So it's so interesting to me that we were having this conversation and we just kind of develop collective amnesia. I mean, I think that's due in large part, and I'm sure we'll chat about this, to marketing of gas stoves. But mm-hmm. um, for everyone being like, this is coming out of the blue right. and this is being manufactured. Like, no. Is this
0: only about it's only about climate change? Right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Like this is because we have this hidden agenda. I mean, and I guess it maybe it's a hidden agenda to keep people safe, but like, no, we we have <laughs> uh-huh. long been <laughs>
0: So what happened in the eighties then? All these questions pop up in the early eighties. Yeah. I remember o- other things about the politics of the early eighties. Think about all the many, many things that we started in the 70s that if we just kept doing them, we we'd be so much could better have off today. That plane. Yes, and it all came to a screeching halt in the eighties.
1: Yeah, and so so during the nineteen eighties, you have both EPA and the CPSC kind of working on this. Congress created this interagency research group on indoor air quality. To coordinate research in 1979. And so that includes various EPA investigations. And then, as we said, the CPSC was undertaking these investigations and authoring reports about fuel fired appliances. In the spring of 1986, EPA instructed CPSC, they're kind of exchanging dialogue about Mm -hmm. like the fact that they kind of think there's a problem here. So EPA tells CPSC to identify the level of NO2 in homes that is coming from a appliances so they're like all right this is your sort of wheelhouse which you know I think this could also well be EPA's wheelhouse but they say you you need to now go out and find out what level of no2 is coming from appliances and whether or not that's safe and the fact is that that just never happened and mm. that's exactly what the RFI that Trump is referring to is gonna do so uh. again this isn't some new thing like it's actually just fulfilling this 40 year, old request from epa and i should add that, that that you know this doesn't seem that uncommon on the consumer product side like i'm pretty sure asbestos and baby powder and lead paint like there was really well established science for 50 60 70 years before
0: leaded gas too yeah. something like 50 years we we knew about leaded gas it's wild to look back now in retrospect at how long these all these things took
1: yeah and you know honestly thanks to industry and the fact that no one is really often is working on behalf of the American people, but a lot of people work on behalf <laughs> of
0: industry. Well, let's segue then into, um, I mean, one of the explanations, you know, this this concern was big in the late 70s and early 80s. It was moving forward and then got sort of shut down at the consumer agency, probably because uh, they were not, you know, the administration was not big fans of regulation at the time and was big fans of fossil fuels at the time. So one of the reasons that this got put on the back burner, uh, pardon the pun, and stayed there for decades is that the gas industry uh, worked very hard (laughs) to keep it on the back burner. So let's talk about that then a little bit. Uh, You know, I think people are – there's a lot of information flying around these days about the gas industry's current sort of propaganda efforts, all its Instagram influencers and whatnot. Yes. But they've been at it for a while. So let's talk a little bit about that history.
1: Yeah. So even while, you know, the gas industry is doing a lot of research and kind of trying to work with regulators to control the narrative on the pollutants, they're also undertaking really aggressive marketing of gas stoves. But actually, this goes back much further. So, like nearly a hundred years. Um, this has been coming up a lot on the internet, and I'm so happy it's coming out because I think it's one of those things that illustrates just how conditioned we've been. But this phrase "cooking with gas" that was a phrase that was developed by an executive from the American Gas Association in the 1930s, and he happened to know some writers for Bob Hope and some other radio show hosts, <laughs> and it starts to appear in these scripts, and then just get Gets picked up by other places, it really becomes like ubiquitous. This phrase in culture by the 1940s. Emily Atkins, in her heated newsletter last week, dug up an old AGA newsletter where they're like reflecting on this, but pretending that they didn't actually plant it. And it's just a super funny. I I thought that was hilarious. Um, this, the newsletter is like, gas men began to listen as they had never listened before, not knowing whether to be glad, mad, dazed, or dazzled by such widespread free publicity. It's like, they how, know so How well. did it
0: happen? What's, what's going on here? Totally. One of the obvious sort of first questions to ask is, you know, people who are familiar with the subject now know that gas stoves represent a relatively small percentage of gas demand, mm-hmm. right? It's not a big piece of the gas industry puzzle. So what explains their sort of obsessive focus on it for so long?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think they recognized really early on that this was the way that they were going to like ingratiate themselves to consumers. And like, this was their way to get in the house and stay in the house. Hmm this was the only possible appliance that one could have an attachment to, right? It's the only one that's visible. It's the only one that you kind of actively use
0: Right, and it's cooking, it's family, it's caring for your totally. family. It's got all that whole web of associations.
1: Yeah, and they they begin to like market it as a, a status symbol. It becomes, mm. you know, there's tons of marketing by the the '50s and the '60s about it's how you're able to cook better, it's how you make food that tastes better, and they're really just like selling, you know, at the time to basically women like this is how you be a good wife and a good mother. And this is how you feed your family. And they're especially speaking to kind of like major coastal urban areas, just because that's where gas demand was sort of emerging. And that's where they were like, had the funds essentially to put in the infrastructure. So as you reference, gas residential use just really skyrockets very particularly in major coastal urban areas, so New York and California. And that's still today where we have The highest rates of gas cooking and gas consumption
0: right well let's just make a note of this because everybody loves to laugh about this uh on the internet gas stove use is much higher in blue states than in red states this sort of an inversion of the culture war that we're having it's uh actual distribution of gas use is almost opposite of that
1: Totally. And so to see like the right wingers pick this up as like this kind of populist kind of issue when it's actually been like you are much more likely to cook with gas if you are a a higher income person, especially if you're in the southeast because you paid a lot to get yourself gas service there. Yeah. And so there's a a huge amount of consumer marketing through these decades, but then there's other ways that utilities specifically, and when we talk about the gas industry, there's like, you know, there's a a web here, but often we're talking about the gas utilities um, who sell the gas to consumers.
0: Yeah, and let me just say by way of background, I mean, maybe this is obvious, probably obvious to you, but to make sure it's clear to everyone, you know, an electric utility is involved in giving you electricity. It is, at least in theory, neutral toward how to generate that electricity, right? It can accommodate different ways of creating that electricity. A gas utility is very different. It's about the one fuel. And if we use less of the fuel, then the utility shrinks and disappears. So, so um, gas is existential for gas utilities in a way that none of these arguments are for electric utilities.
1: Totally. And so you see gas utilities do this kind of interesting thing where they set up like culinary centers and test kitchens and Mm -hmm. they develop relationships with restaurant associations. They sponsor scholarships and they make gas this like Core curricula of culinary schools, which uh. is obviously another very clever way that you are embedding yourself in that culture, specifically of you know for chefs and for folks who do cooking as a profession. Right. And as we you know now know, they begin to really lean into this relationship and rely on that relationship with chefs and restaurant associations to fight electrification. We're seeing this across the board and in, in states where we have policies moving. But yeah, they've they've really relied on gas to be this way. Edge between them and their kind of competitor, electricity. And then they started to really double down on this in the past five years or so when they perceived that electrification is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have some emails that came out through Discovery uh, between the American Public Gas Association and SoCal Gas. And I find this particularly egregious because APGA represents municipal utilities. So these mm. are like publicly owned utilities. These are like even more than investor owned utilities, who, in my opinion, also you know should be working for us because they're supposedly <laughs> providing a public good. But like APGA and SoCalGas are trading emails about this energy efficiency proceeding in California. And they're like, oh, it's coming. Like broad scale electrification is on the horizon mm. and it's a huge threat. And APGA actually launched the very first. You know, a lot of folks have been talking about these influencer campaigns. APGA and AGA both had them, but APGA went first with this gas genius campaign that's like very targeted marketing at like Gen X. Mm-hmm. Um, really trying to uh, sell themselves to a particular generation there. And then AGA did the same with this cooking with gas campaign where they're basically paying influencers on Instagram to like gush about their gas cooking. (laughs) And as much as that got called out and has been this like kind of just public source of mockery we're still seeing them do this like southwest gas did this just last year with some really honestly hilarious videos of some folks in las vegas like you know burning eggs and talking about how you can only burn eggs effectively with gas
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know it's so it's so cringy to us this is one of those things where like how do normal people process these things i have no idea it's been so long since i've been a normal person on this subject like it's very cringy to us Do we know whether it works? Like, do we know if you're just the average Instagram schmo and you run across one of these things, whether they're effective?
1: Well, you know, the one reason I would say that it probably is effective is because it's a message that's echoed, not just from like an Instagram influencer, but like it's at this point, like this has been incredibly successful to manufacture mm-hmm. a consumer preference for gas and to right. truly believe that like you can only cook better and that food tastes better. And it's like, I I mean, I can't not picture those chemicals now when I see the blue <laughs> flame. So this idea of like, am I Partner is like you know his method for cooking tortillas is like he chars it directly over the frame, but I'm just like that is not does not seem super safe or great right now.
0: Eggs are better with benzene. That's a, right? that's the it's, new
1: like that is wild.
0: And we should also just uh, note, as you noted before, but I want to just put an exclamation point on it again. Very frequently, gas utilities are using ratepayer funds to do this <laughs> propaganda yes you know so it's 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 gas customers that are often paying for the sort of lobbying and propaganda that we're seeing
1: yeah we unfortunately have to pay our gas company to prevent us from accessing better options and prevent <laughs> us from having like a good faith conversation about this and this is what makes me mm. actually like very angry is Even this week, everyone acts like this is all some – because this is the frame they set, like a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. We don't get to have an honest, straightforward conversation about the safety of what's in our home, how we can protect ourselves, and just, you know, the benefits of doing so. And, yeah, it's frustrating.
0: Well, I mean, this is – as you say, this is precisely the reason they homed in on stoves so long ago is, number one, like stoves are very emotional to people, uh, very – connected to a lot of emotion and number two like if you're trying to electrify and get rid of gas most people i think don't have a super strong preference about their water heater or their furnace or whatever so if you can switch those out for electric you can but you can't cut off the gas line to the house as long as there's a gas stove right so as long as there's that gas stove there you are preserving the gas hookup and the gas infrastructure. That's what this is about. That's why they're focusing on stoves, even though stoves aren't that big a consumer.
1: Totally. They know full well that, you know, this conversation really is about that infrastructure. But so long as we can keep people sold on this idea. And one thing I think is a little bit wild, you know, a lot of folks feel strongly about their gas stove. That's not well, I mean, it's becoming a Republican thing, which I totally love. And we can talk about how this (laughs) is like pushing a target audience uh, away from gas cooking. But when people say, like, we can't switch or gas is just better, like, A, that's been manufactured. But we also haven't been cooking with gas for all that long. Like, this is the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. We transitioned from, like, coal stoves before. There's a, a chef that we work with, uh, Chris Galarza, and his he just makes the point that, like, We can still have culture and tradition. It's not the fuel source. Like, cooking will (laughs) remain a wonderful way to unify families. (laughs) We can learn. We can change. Uh, We change to gas.
0: Food still heats. Right? And eats. Yes. (laughs) And this is also, I just, uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the right time to say this, but for some reason, like, I see these people on Twitter saying confidently, like, I've used both and gas is so much better. The the way that makes me feel is always – similar to how I used to feel about the debate about marijuana legalization. Like you can go out in public and confidently say that if you smoke pot, you're gonna be deranged and, and wreck your car or whatever, but I've smoked pot. Like <laughs> a bunch of people have smoked pot. Like we you you can't you could can fool us about things we don't have direct experience with, but totally we've we've experienced this and we know that's bullshit. I've cooked with both gas and induction and the idea that just your average run of the mill Joe Jane in their kitchen is so expert right. <laughs> that these fine distinctions of like, Oh, I've got to get exactly the right char. Yeah. I'm so sure. Like I'm so sure you're getting the exact right char. You- get
1: takeout
0: yes you're
1: eating 50 percent of your meals from the burrito shop as am i (laughs) it's fine we can admit this but it definitely became the like smartest person in the room response to the the debate and but like what i don't like about that or what i would hope folks would understand is like you're i mean it's just like with cars and massive cars you've been taught to believe that that has been manufactured all consumer preferences
0: people really do not like to hear that their own consumer preferences have been shaped by socialization and by nefarious forces. They really, really don't like to hear that. But, you know, it's just true. All of us were born into this. We're shaped, we're socialized, we're given messages. And then, you know, we grow up and suddenly we have this passionate idea that gas stoves are better. I just wish people would like Just take a step back and think a little bit. Like, really, did you – was that purely through your experience of cooking on gas that you came to this weirdly passionate feeling about an appliance? Like, just just consider.
1: What I, again, love about this week is you have, like, these, like – Right-wing representation, walking representations of, like, toxic masculinity now being, like, ga- like this appliance is the thing that the they care gun. so much about. Right. I mean, yeah, God, guns, gas, stoves. But keep it up. Like, they should continue on this well, for let's, as long let's as talk possible.
0: about this. Let's talk about <laughs> okay. this. So we've got um, these health concerns that go way, way, way back and are fairly well established. We've got this long history of the gas industry Propagandizing around gas stoves, making these relationships with chefs and culinary centers, really working the idea that high end, you know, your sort of more sophisticated consumer, of course, will only cook with gas, you know, and so you get this sort of high end sheen. Your thesis. I mean, I I think a lot of people looking at this sort of intuitively would think, oh, no, this is another culture war. It's another backlash. This is another environmentalists are shooting themselves in the foot by going after things people love. And they're only harming their own long-term goals and, you know, all the usual lecturing of The left is in full flower uh, out there on Twitter. But your thesis is that the political valence of this, the political consequences of this are going to redound in favor of environmentalists. So tell us why.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of key reasons. I, you know, one is just simply like awareness raising. Mm. There has literally been close to 10,000 media stories in the past two weeks about <laughs> gas stoves uh. and asthma, like
0: uh. bring
1: it on, keep it up. Um, <laughs> this has been a phenomenal moment for induction cooking, which the, the issue with induction in the U S not in Europe or other markets has just been sheer awareness. It's like 3%, mm-hmm. I think of the market. And, you know, unfortunately, to date, manufacturers haven't really pushed this technology super hard. And so, you know, there hasn't been a lot of advertising of it.
0: Yeah, let's just say, because this has been also coming out in findings recently, too. And this was in the New York Times story they did. The the, the problem here is not passionate defenders versus passionate uh, haters of stoves. The vast, vast, vast majority of Americans specifically don't know what any of this is about and might not even be aware that induction is a thing that exists.
1: Totally. So yes, when everyone is worried about this and rightfully, like we all understand they're talking about those old school, like coil heated stoves that really right. did take a long time to heat <laughs> yes. up and they weren't super and do powerful suck. and do suck. I think like new <laughs> electric models are kind of fine, um, mm. but induction is not fine. It's totally awesome. It rules. It it really, really is. Um, And I so but just quickly on on that kind of awareness raising, I think it may not even seem like it today or in two weeks. But my personal experience on this issue and again, like I'm a renter and have pretty much all our places have had gas stoves is that like. I learned about this about five years ago. I was like, wow, that's interesting. But like, I'm obviously in no position to change my stove. And then like every time I clicked on the pilot light and I saw the flame, I just started <laughs> to get a little bit worried. And then I started to realize that like my five-year-old is fully eye level with that or like the baby's crawling towards the stove. Mm. And it, it's like alarm bells started to be raised. And it's just that sheer little bit of doubt that, you know, finally I was like, well, I'm tired of being stressed about this. So we just bought a like duck's top single burner (laughs) cooktop and we cook all of our food for a family of four on a little induction cooktop. And that's the other thing that I think has been missing in there's been incredible coverage of induction. It's finally kind of coming into the public consciousness and folks are noting it can be a little bit pricier. And I think um, there's a lot of cost competitive ranges, but it is true if you're getting like a full blown oven, but you don't need to do that. You can spend under $100. And you can use that and your toaster oven and your Instapot and your air fryer. Like Mm -hmm. I think if you look around your kitchen, you'll probably find you have a lot of electric appliances that can cover all of your kitchen needs. And yeah, maybe this isn't the absolute five alarm fire from a health perspective, it's certainly worth a look. But like we can also there's really easy solutions where we just don't even have to think about whether or not we're getting exposed to NO2.
0: Yes. uh, This is something I I have kind of wanted to say about the whole debate. It might as well say it here. But it's like if there were super, super compelling reasons to keep gas in your home, then maybe they would offset these health concerns. Cause like you say, mm-hmm. like, like there are other bigger health risks out there in America for people to worry about. This is sort of like a, an exacerbating factor on the edge, but there just aren't. <laughs> so why, you know, so it's like, if there's any concern at all, induction is just better. So why not do it? It's like, it's like, there's just the, the idea that there are countervailing considerations here is just kind of silly to me. Like we're talking about a product where literally a better, cleaner, more convenient product is available. So totally, it's like, you don't need that much evidence to prefer the latter.
1: Yeah, top to bottom and this isn't just true on the cooking side. Like this is true for heating. Heat pumps are just a better technology. Yes. You're going to get cooling access that you didn't have before. You're getting rid of super inefficient electric resistance heating and inefficient cooling and we're going to help solve a lot of our grid demand issues. Every single and this is one reason I've been a little frustrated because I think the climate movement in general, we get super scared when a fight happens. Yes. We're like, oh, my God, I'm on the spot. But like, this is the most incredible opening we've ever had. We have no reason to be ashamed of pushing electric technologies because <laughs> they are literally better at every single level. And it's OK to fight for people's health. Like, It's OK to fight for things that are good.
0: Yes. And I, I particularly love the like, oh, you only care about this because of climate change. I'm like, well, even if, if that were true... It's kind of a big deal. deal. (laughs) It's it's true. I am concerned about it. You got me
1: totally. Like, don't let them push you into this idea that you know the hot seat's a bad place to be. Right. Use it. (laughs) This is this is awesome.
0: And there, it seems to be shifting. So let's like get back to politics a little bit. It seems like so. You think by the sort of MAGA crowd claiming this as a cultural symbol alongside their guns and their rolling coal and whatever else burgers or whatever else they've picked as sort of their cultural touchstones. You think that's good for the politics?
1: I think this is near fatal for gas utilities, this discussion. Mm. So I think that this becoming a culture war. And again, I I think gas cooking being identified as a right-wing virtue pushes a really important group of people to no longer or, like, to think twice about identifying with gas cooking as, like, a key part of their identity.
0: Yes, which, as we've noted, is mostly, like, most of the gas stoves are in blue states. So it's, like... exactly.
1: Yeah. New York, California, Illinois, these states make up 25 percent of gas demand in the U.S. and they have the highest rates of gas cooking. Nine of the 11 highest gas consumption states are either blue or purple. Um, (laughs) and Electrification is happening in blue states. So as a lot of folks maybe know, about 20 states pretty much across the Southeast are preempted. So Republicans have run bill with support from um, their their allies in the American Gas Association and otherwise to uh, prevent them from doing any kind of a broad scale, like local level um, electrification ordinance. But in blue states where we need support for this... People are now being told that cooking with gas, which has always been the biggest hang-up, right, this previous attachment to mm-hmm. gas cooking, even for climate-leaning folks, has been this lingering reason to not support electrification or to feel a little worried about it.
0: Because it still has that sheen of, like, sophistication and high-end, you know. Totally. So now we have MAGA people telling them. <laughs> nope. Nope.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I personally don't want to be identified with those folks. And I think a lot of the left-leaning folks don't. And these are the exact folks that we actually needed. And honestly, I just, in my view, this is a total act of goddess. We never, (laughs) ever could have unwinded that 100 years of marketing to position it like this if this week hadn't happened. This is incredible. There's a a Yale study where they asked folks um, what words come to mind in association with natural gas they used the word natural um and the words that came up for folks was energy clean fuel and cooking
0: uh-huh. and
1: after this week i think it's going to be like asthma harmful health maga republican right <laughs> like and also i just think the frenzy on it makes that identification feel a little ridiculous and the, the folks who really are going to identify this are, are folks that unfortunately and i care deeply about them. I wish they could also have access to a pollution free home. But that's a population we were never, ever going to reach on this issue. So there's broad swaths of the people in this country that I think are normal. And seeing (laughs) these other folks taping themselves to gas stoves (laughs) and making like protection of a kitchen appliance, the biggest, you know, thing in their world, that's objectively like funny and it's silly. And honestly, ultimately it's weak. And it's showing us that like a deep identification with just one cooking technology is a little bit silly, especially if you're going to ignore a huge body of science that says that cooking technology could well be hurting your health.
0: It's funny, just that angle sort of hadn't occurred to me that it's specifically now MAGA people telling the blue owners of most of the stoves, that ownership of those stoves is now a MAGA right-wing thing. It is yeah. exquisitely sort of uh counter to their own interests. Kind of beautiful that way.
1: Worst possible messengers. And so, and like, <laughs> I, I, God, I would love to see group chats on this from some other sides. Because I, I wonder, so because how this went down to is like, you know, Bloomberg started covering it couple of the right wingers came out and then it was like the next day you had Joe Manchin and oh, it really it. blew up and part of me wonders if the sending out of the talking points to get the right-wing machine in gear was coming from the more, you know, established like Koch brothers things. But I just wonder, you know, and maybe the American Gas Association and others threw up a a call for help, but I think probably pretty quickly realized that this was not going to turn out well, again, (laughs) in the electrification states where the gas... Utilities are almost entirely dependent on selling their gas, and it—you know—it might be a while before we see how this all plays out. But I just firmly believe that again, this has been one of the most uh, incredible turning points that we could ever have even dreamed up or manifested uh, to help educate folks about the health harms of gas cooking, but also to undo this this conditioning, which has barely been a barrier for us.
0: Yes, it's beautiful. So the the politics are. Seems like the, the most um, predictable political effect of this is going to be in blue states where gas bans are being discussed, are on the table now, are a possibility. This is now going to sort of reframe those gas bans as a way to stick your thumb in the eye of the MAGA movement, which is absolutely the best way you could sell those in those states.
1: Yeah. I mean, and also a way to protect your family and, and get access oh, sure. and funding and, <laughs> you know, everything else that we need to get access to folks. I mean, I think one of the things that are also could be going on and, and folks just get, a, you know, I, I think climate folks in general get afraid to be Vocal, but I think that this is just a really important time to again bring up that this is like not a zero sum game. That these uh, the electrification movement, gas bans or gas ordinances, or all the work that we're doing to try and bring folks into healthier, better housing that doesn't just have the super straightforward winners or losers. And I think one of the reasons why we're afraid of harnessing this narrative is like, you know, we're very conscious of organized labor membership or people who don't have the means to electrify. But I think this is just exactly that opportunity to get out there right now and fight for those who have gas in their homes to get that out, get them access to induction cooktops, like let's expand IRA funding, let's use state budgets Mm -hmm. to help supplement the costs here. And I think workers who really do care about climate change, like this is our chance to tell folks that this is, you know, electrification is huge for skilled labor. (laughs) Like there are so many opportunities. I keep
0: keep reading and hearing stories about how we're short on those workers, those basic trade workers, like elect- specifically electricians, which we're going to need a, a bazillion of in coming years. Yes.
1: Year. This is a chance to revitalize vocational education in this country mm. and beef up unions. Like, we need electricians across the board, also for the plumbers and the pipe fitters. And this is what bothers me is that, like, labor, the tops, the lab- leadership, and the utilities are going around telling everyone that, yeah, this means your job, your job is over, you're done mm. if we pursue these electrification measures. When really we have like thermal energy networks coming up as a solution yes. in states across the country, plumbers and pipe fitters are going continue to work on pipes. Mm -hmm. We're just going to pipe like clean energy and use heat pumps. Hot water. Yeah. It's electrification. It's labor-led electrification. And even for the gas linemen and folks who I would say probably know better than anyone exactly how dangerous gas is. And we didn't even touch on like the fact that when you electrify, you're getting rid of explosions and, you know, there's so much beyond just the health. But these workers, like if we all agreed tomorrow that we're going to retire the gas system and move to 100% electrification for homes... That's twenty to thirty years of work in which that expertise,
0: <laughs> I know, is so central. Of all things that would do threatening jobs is just absolutely on the bottom of the list. Like if if there's one thing we know about what that would take, it's a lot of work. So
1: much work and an opportunity for like solid family sustaining long-term work and the education pipelines. There's a really innovative approach that's being proposed in New York right now to very specifically go to uh, communities where there hasn't been traditionally opportunities and where it's overburdened, you know, there's pollution Mm -hmm. burdens and get folks into those pipelines right now. And we, we can have this like an honest, real conversation about electrification is really important. I think this is an opportunity to have it so long as we can push the fossil fuel folks out of the way who are preventing us from speaking about what's really at stake here, but also the sheer amount of opportunity that we're presented
0: with. Right. And this is, I think this gets at the politics too. Like the gas industry would love for this entire discussion to be focused on one asthma study. So, you know, like the discussion is not its not just about the one study. It's not just about the history of studies. It's not just about yes. the other risks. It's about all the risks of gas infrastructure. And it's about the way that gas stoves are the sort of cork in the bottle. You know what I mean? Like once you get them out of the way, the rest of electrification becomes easier, even though they themselves are a relatively small part of demand for gas. They're a very big symbolic and sort of political uh, flag in the ground for the gas industry. So they matter broadly for labor, for politics, for health, and for decarbonization. Even though they are a small source of greenhouse gases in and of themselves, they are part of the larger picture of decarbonization. So I just think we need to keep pulling the lens back
1: Absolutely. And honestly, like they've been accusing us of banning gas stoves for four years. So, like, we, we don't really have that much to lose in this moment. Also, this was never a no one's banning gas stoves, but like this was this came from a regulator. This didn't come from climate folks. So, it's just right. like a super fascinating moment. But Yes, let's let's harness this. There's like so much education that can be happening and it's OK to fight for what's right, even if it's uncomfortable. I mean, we just we so <laughs> lack like climate pundits who can get into the conversation. I know,
0: I know all these. Well, it's all this all these sort of establishment like the disease of the left <laughs> or, or the Democratic Party in the United States is this posture of cringing pre-surrender and terror, totally. you know, this just this, this whole idea that like the power and the momentum is on the side of reactionary forces. And I just don't think that's true. And like just confidence, right? Just confidence is what the yeah. whole friggin' left, the whole democratic party and the whole climate movement needs more of like, yes, you caught us. We're trying to make things safer. And like, <laughs> Stop. Uh, Climate change, like, busted. Uh, Two more quick aspects of this before I let you go that I want to get into. Uh, One is just the justice, the environmental justice angle. Sort of like one thing that's reactionaries will say, you know, this is going to hurt poor people worse because they can't afford these fancy, expensive induction stoves, and so they're going to be hurt worse by this. But another way to look at it is by locking in gas stoves, you know, we focus all our attention on sort of this upscale suburban woman consumer, but it's going to be poor people who can't get away from gas stoves, right? I mean, that's how, that's how it always ends up. The poor people who work at the restaurants, the poor people who are renting, like insofar as we let gas stoves hang around, it's not suburban mom <laughs> who's, who's going to be the modal consumer. It's going to be people who can't. Get away from it. So, how do you think about the justice, environmental justice, and sort of economic justice aspects of all this?
1: Yeah. We are about to see, you know, in the next month or two, this wave of gas heating bills hit folks across the country. Like the price of yeah. methane gas, you know, has been up every year. It's like doubling, but this winter has been crazy for this. And I think it's like not fully understood that you have this spot price of gas, you know, methane gas that is passed on by utilities who, you know, pushed for you know, pipeline replacements and all this other infrastructure that is also added to your bill, but then claims no responsibility when that price goes through the roof and you're hit with hundreds and Mm -hmm. hundreds of dollars. And a lot of the like moratoriums that we had on utility bill shutoffs have expired. And we're just I I think we're like about to see a really horrible crisis. So when folks say that like gas is the cheaper option, well, right now it absolutely is not. And it's certainly not when you look at the concept of as you're speaking to stranded Assets, the fact that a lot of folks are going to be left on a gas system that steadily needs, you know, a huge amount of investment, only just to keep it safe, supposedly, yeah. let alone when utilities get their way and pilot all these ludicrous like hydrogen for heating projects and re- make us pay for like <laughs> renewable natural gas and stuff. So we have a total crisis on our hands on energy affordability across the board, but that's being driven on both sides from the fact that we're exporting all of our natural gas and that prices are going through the roof and that's driving up both the price of electricity and the price of gas heating bills. And, you know, this is one area where there's You know, folks who are really doing interesting, like push the envelope work on energy burden stuff. But we absolutely need to be more vocal and also just like near term focus on these bills and making sure that power does not get shut off. But yes, beyond that, I think um, we're starting to see this. So California had we had close to a billion and it got cut back a little bit and extended over years. So Governor Newsom really would like to see our funding reinstated. But close to a billion in California from last year's state budget to uh, do low-income whole-home retrofit. So this Mm. is go into homes, get them heat pumps. And super important point here on heat pump efficiency is that in most places, that's going to produce... great kind of energy savings while offering access right. to cooling all across you know, the I-5 corridor. If yes. Portland, Oregon can hit 116 degrees yes. for five days at a time, we need cooling yesterday. And actually in Portland, there's another really innovative program, this Portland Clean Energy Fund that's distributing 15,000 heat pumps to homes in need. I saw some super sick legislation get introduced in DC to do these kind of low income retrofits. But right now, I think if we could just all focus and this is the goal like the kind of government funded and incentivized electrification needs to be laser focused on helping lower income folks and folks without the means to electrify do that. That's a policy problem with a policy solution. There's a lot of money f- changing hands, floating around in the world, and we can absolutely make this happen. And in the process of doing so, we're gonna like lock in better affordability, but we're also gonna clean up the air, get access to cooling, and solve a lot of major kind of urgent crises that are coming. Coming with extreme heat. And then we also need to have a discussion on the infrastructure side. Like climate change is posing a very serious problem problem to all of our energy systems. And right now, we pay for and we maintain two really complicated energy systems, gas and electricity. We don't have a choice to live without electricity. like That's not happening. So we need to take all of our time and energy and shore up and safeguard transmission, build more transmission, build more renewables. And we could you know, there's an economies of scale here. We need to focus on systematic, organized neighborhood level retirement of the gas system, like work with those communities to electrify. And bit by bit, we have this like really promising future of retiring that gas system and just focusing on what we need to create community resilience, which is like distributed clean energy, neighborhood resource centers where you know you can go for air conditioning or anything else. And there's like so many solutions again, which if we could just focus our attention there and we weren't fighting on so many fronts, we would be much better off.
0: Sage, you are, you're singing my song here. You're singing the volts. This is like the volts theme song you're, you're singing. And this is like, this is what I would say to people too. Like the arguments about this tend to be so narrow, like the cost of this stove versus that stove in January, (laughs) 2023, you know what I mean? Or like, uh, the number of electrical brownouts and blackouts, right, versus gas outages and all these sort of narrow comparisons. But I just wish people would, like, step back long-term on some time scale and on some geographical scale. We have to electrify completely. We have to more or less get rid of as much gas as we can get rid of. And that's going to be ultimately safer for people, better for their health, more reliable, and cheaper In the long term. So it's not a matter of whether to do this stuff. It's just a matter of planning how to do it right. And as you say, if we didn't have to maintain two concurrent infrastructures, we could make the one that we need and love and need long term a lot better and safer and more reliable. Totally. Uh, I just repeated everything you said, but uh, <laughs> but, well, it's but that's my theme song, like, so I got to sing it's it. It's
1: an exciting proposition, and it's you know I, I'm not sure that the kind of end goal of electrification was ever really made clear. Yeah. But there's just so much about it that's going to be so helpful. I mean, we're going to have like extremely responsive energy demand between like vehicle to grid integration. You know, they're building heat pumps with batteries in them. Like, there's yes. just So much innovative technology. And what folks are worried about is their own personal resilience. And we can invest in that. Like, there's a lot of solutions. But yes, if we could just shove aside everyone who's trying to force us into that zero sum game thinking and these really bad faith conversations, then I think that, you know, if we can kind of speak to what we are giving people, which is a shit ton when it comes to electric (laughs) technologies they're going to be on our side.
0: Well, this is my final question. And and the last thing I want to ask you about, um, you know, the environmental movement is often accused of only being against things and constantly saying no, 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 and constantly wanting to take things away from you. And that is very much how the people currently yelling at environmentalists are trying to frame this whole thing. So I know that... The anti-gas sort of uh, uh, movement, the science organization, it's all underway, and that's great. But what about the pro-induction? Like what about the selling of the alternative? I wish that – I mean it seems to me that that's a big missing piece of what's happening right now. It would be a lot easier to have these discussions if average American consumers understood better that what they're being encouraged to get – is better. It's just better. So like when I hear about giant propaganda campaigns to preserve fossil fuels or, you know, I talked to Michael Thomas on the pod a a few weeks ago about the sort of right-wing funding that's going into all these anti-renewable energy groups and these NIMBY groups, I always come back to the same question, which is there are millions, billions of dollars sloshing around on the left, sloshing around the big green groups. Where is the pro electric appliances generally, but just pro induction stove propaganda campaign? Like who's who on our side is funding? You know, all you need to do is you don't even need to lie to anyone. Just tell them the truth about induction stoves. Is anyone doing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think folks are doing this and I would, I think that, th- so there's two tracks here. One is that I think we did just open this like incredible door for the actual manufacturer. So if you are a stove manufacturer this week and you make both gas and electric models, uh, but the New York Times just called your product uh, a kitchen pariah and the Atlantic <laughs> said it was doomed and House Beautiful said the era of gas stoves is over, then and I'm wire pretty cutter, sure. Let's,
0: let's mention this too, Wirecutter, yes. the, the geek, which all geeks worship has revised and now no longer says that it makes sense to hold on to your gas stove if you have one. They've revised and are basically saying, replace this as soon as you can
1: as soon as you feel like it's feasible. That's, that's huge, right? This trusted consumer resource. If I was, you know, in the, on these advertising teams, I would very quickly be reapportioning my budgets to Mm -hmm. the potential growth industry. I think your question's really interesting. I think that the job of the climate movement on this very specific topic is to sort of push the policy that shows the market exactly where the growth industry is. And I think Mm -hmm. we're starting to do that. So he pump sales, you know, are through the roof. And my hope is that this week will lead to induction. <laughs> also, I wonder. like we just showed them this is how you market it. It's clean air. It's pollution free. It's worry free technology for your kitchen. And we have local news folks actually go. I saw two clips that I just thought were adorable of going around to appliance Showrooms this week being like, Are you getting a lot of questions about gas stoves? And all the appliance people are like, Yeah. And we're super psyched because we've been sitting on, you know, these induction stoves that we're finally getting to tell people about. But my hope is that we're going to see a huge influx in advertising dollars, just because, like, also right now, close to a quarter of the population in this country is living somewhere where. An electrification policy is moving. Mm. And if you make these technologies, and a lot of the OEMs make both, you should really start to invest in the product that has a, a future rather than the product that simply doesn't. I think it's a little awkward to have climate folks necessarily selling technology because I actually worry that would turn folks off. What I want to see is the cool, sleek folks who know how to advertise stuff just put <laughs> money into this so that we can show them. And I think the role of climate people, honestly, should. Be continuing to push the policies that are gonna push the market, and I think the OEMs are starting to come around on this. And I also think the technology is improving so dramatically that I guess my hope is that we're about to see a massive influx. Um, But speaking to your other question or part of your question about why, which I've heard you bring up before, like why does the climate movement or um, the folks who hold the big money, which tends to be the big greens and or the funders, not put more money into like paid advertising? I think part of it has to do with like a metrics issue and part of it just has to do with like being wholeheartedly focused on our narrow view of hitting policymakers and pushing that policy line. Yeah, it's hard, you know, and I do see some general advertising TV spots starting to push back. And I think that we should actually be far more aggressive in going after our our enemies with those advertising dollars in general. You know, one thing that worries me is like popular opinion or public opinion, like on climate change, for example, doesn't necessarily translate to policy action. Mm -hmm. So I think funding for paid on really targeted kind of state level advertising is a really good idea, basically, you know, for lack of a better word, to like take down opponents and make Make very clear who is standing in the way of what I think most people want. Like, I don't think our goal is to shift public opinion on climate so much anymore is show exactly who is standing in the way of that and overcome that barrier. Because unfortunately, like just the politics of our country mean that even if something is wildly popular with folks, it doesn't translate into them getting access to that. Right.
0: Yeah, I get all that. I guess I I just my instinct is that it just wouldn't take that much money. It yeah. wouldn't take that much money to do like like what I want is like sure the stove industry is going to advertise their stoves and the car industry is going to advertise their EVs but I always think about this commercial for the Nissan Leaf. I, I don't know if I'm the only person who remembers this commercial. It's probably my favorite commercial in the friggin' world but it shows these people waking up in the morning and they go crank up like a fossil fuel powered coffee maker you know which starts sort of spewing smoke in their home and then they go crank up their microwave you know and the, and the point being like wouldn't it be ridiculous if your home appliances were powered by fossil fuels and were spewing pollution into your home? Like, right. wouldn't that be crazy? You wouldn't want that. Like, why why wouldn't you want electric and clean? And this to me is sort of like it's the gestalt of electrification yeah. that no one is gonna, no commercial entity is gonna advertise that. But like somebody needs to be talking about how look, you got a induction stove with a battery in it. Yeah. You got your car with a battery in it. You got your whole home sort of software that's coordinating these things so you can make it through a blackout. And so there's no emissions, you know, just a sort of like a better world as possible kind of gestalt. I just feel like that is something we know about, like you and I and people like us can envision. But that vision, I think, is very not. Well known, like that, like like products are unsafe is a very familiar story to American people. But this sort of like this electric utopia that lies ahead of us in coming decades, I don't think any of them know about that.
1: Absolutely, and yeah, maybe maybe the only because I just don't necessarily want to see the in-house comms teams at the big greens produce those advertisements. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, just I give the,
0: money to someone who knows how to do it. Let's
1: exactly uh, like let's bring in you know, and there's efforts underway to there's a the Clean Creatives Project that is like working to get um, PR agencies more engaged with climate and saying no to fossil fuel projects and things like that. But I totally agree. That kind of combo, like I would like to see our points and their messaging and advertising expertise, and also in part their advertising dollars. Because even if we peeled off money from, you know, I agree, there are a lot of, there's billions floating around here. But I think it's usually a drop in the bucket compared to what major companies put into their sort of core advertising push to sell products. Um, But if we can create that alignment, and again, I think the policy is showing them that at least like, if you want to salvage it, just what I would like to make, clear is like just don't spend your time trying to salvage the bad stuff. But yes, let's show everyone how amazing the good stuff is gonna be.
0: Yes. A lot of fewer people will want to fight these rear guard battles if they can see a positive vision ahead. Not only for like the world, but you know, for like their stove company or whatever. Absolutely.
1: Like, and so all those big OEMs and others with major, you know, that pay a lot of lip service to climate, like, yeah, maybe it's time to start embedding that in the advertising and in the messaging that's going out from your, your companies.
0: Well, Sage, I really cannot thank you enough. I've, uh, you know, the stove thing has, is sudden and sprawling <laughs> is both sudden and sprawling. Uh, so, uh, it was very helpful to walk through it like this. And, um, You know, maybe we can do it again in a year and and see how induction stove sales are going. I mean, this is such a fast-moving, and as you say, huge, huge opportunity for the good guys here, the people trying to solve climate change, the people trying to improve public health, the people working for environmental justice, a huge opportunity. So thanks for emphasizing that, too. So thank you for all your time.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, best week ever. Happy to do it.
0: (laughs) Awesome. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.